I'm not important and don't have much to say. Thank you for joining me. I'm Mike Lyons. I'm not important and don't have much to say. On tonight's episode, I will air a two-part interview with Stephen Foster and Chuck Pelletier, who are currently making the rounds promoting their newest short film, That's Opportunity Knocking. I also have film journalist John Lynn with me to discuss the film industry and the advent of streaming. I'll ask him about the changing definition of cinema, how streaming has impacted movie going, and what influence, if any, viewers like us have on the industry. And as always, I'll have resident pop culture analyst Carrie Childers with me to discuss a whole ton of celebrity news and gossip. If you want to join in on any of these discussions or make any comments about the show, you can call in at 516-387-1230. Again, that's 516-387-1230. Up first, part one of my interview with Stephen Foster and Chuck Pelletier. These gentlemen have a long history on stage, film, and in music. Their journey as artists centers around the themes of hard work, perseverance, and positivity. We discuss how they knew they wanted to be involved in the arts, the struggle of pursuing artistic dreams, and how their love for each other created a lasting creative partnership. That and much more right now. Have a listen to part one of my interview with Stephen Foster and Chuck Pelletier. Were the arts always something you always pictured yourself being involved in? Well, um, well, with my size and my voice, I didn't really have really that many options. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, entered a, a school, um, a, a high school in ninth grade, uh, I was in a stagecraft class, and they were doing a production of The Runaways, and. I, Part of our grade, we had to actually participate, which was very difficult for me because I was a very shy kid. And we actually had to participate as part of our grade. And they were doing a production of The Runaways, and my first job um, was PR marketing and actually being the prompter um, on the production. That means whenever an actor would go up on a line, I would actually call out their line from the back of the theater. Right. which was actually very good training for me because I was very shy. But I also, as part of that class, had to audition for the first time. And I auditioned for the play. I didn't get in, but it sort of planted a seed in me of what the possibilities of my life could be um, in theater. So that's mm-hmm. how I started my career. So it wasn't something I was born with. It was something I sort of fell into. Interesting. What about you, Chuck? You know, it was in high school that uh, I, uh, after two years of junior high football, joined the high school freshman football team, and uh, I just got beat around too much that I needed a different career. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know what it was. I guess my sister was... um, was instrumental in getting me into choir and, and, and eventually plays. My sister was a beautiful singer. Uh, and my dad played piano. Uh, so uh, there was always a piano in the house, and uh, music was always part of it. Uh, so it was a pretty easy transition um, to uh, stop getting uh, 
blasted in a helmet and shoulder pads to um, going into a room and, and singing with a bunch of people. And then all the, the, uh, the folks in the choir department were all in plays. And I said, well, that sounds fun. Uh, so you just go in and you try out for a play and you get cast in this one and then that one. Uh, one thing leads to another. I think being on stage in a play makes you kind of curious about how plays are written. Being in stage in a musical mm -hmm. makes you curious about how songs and musicals are written. So uh, as early as high school, I mean, I just started writing because I was curious about putting the things together that I was up on stage portraying. Uh, Stephen, you you mentioned in your book, Awakening the Actor Within, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more later, but there's something interesting that you, you mentioned, and I want to bring it up now. So I think it relates to what the both of you are talking about. You mentioned about really, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, about going 100% in. Um, and one thing that I thought about in my own experience is that many people who try to break out in acting or in any kind of area of the arts uh, really gets, uh, it, it can, they can become dismayed or get stuck in this position of, I need to support myself with, um, you know, you see, you see a lot of people doing, you know, um, wait staff jobs and, um, and these side jobs and trying to find a balance between their acting or their music or whatever it is that they, they may do. Um, did, did, did both of you experience that kind of push and pull in your own lives, or did you find you were able to, to break into the arts and support yourself um, right away? Well, um, I do believe in actually jumping in 100%. Mm -hmm. And, but that doesn't mean you have to completely capsize your entire life and give up your livelihood, as right. a lot of actors do. And I know that for myself, I have always had jobs and other means of support while I was pursuing my career. So it's not like somebody just handed me a million dollar check and right. I was able to go out and make this art. A lot of um, the art that Chuck and I have made has been um, we've self-produced it. We've um, been had a hand in our productions. So I think it is a, it's a supreme balance. And and I always tell actors, you know, make sure your life is in balance before you go out and do your career, um, because you want all the crazy things to be in your career because it's crazy and it's hard and it's difficult and it's challenging and you want your own life to not be that. You want your own life to be very peaceful and very calm if you can get it to be that way because the arts is very turbulent and difficult. Does that answer your question? I think so. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, agree with that. And, yeah. and I would add that uh the um most of the people that i know in hollywood that have um had a certain amount of financial uh success from their creations whether it's you know being a performer on stage or or writing of any of any type uh have enjoyed the process of writing what they are in control of a lot more than the process of creating what they're not in control of. And the more in control they are, 
the more they have loved what they've done and the more they feel proud of what they've done. And I think the better the work usually is. Um, and there's a uh, inverse proportion, I think, to the amount of money you get and the amount of control you have. <laughs> that from, from what I've seen at every level, uh, if, if somebody's making a lot of money for uh, the screenplay that they're writing, generally they're, A, not happy with the process, and B, not happy with the product, just historically from the, from the people that I have talked to. Whereas the people that uh, just say, eh, it, it, the same people sometimes just say, you know, I, I can't do that anymore. It's sucking the life out of me. I'm going to write this because this is what I have to write. Mm -hmm. uh, those usually tend to be their favorite projects and everybody else's favorite projects of theirs. So I guess uh, my point is, yeah, as Stephen says, there's a balance. You have, to, you have to balance what you do creatively for money with what you do creatively for love. Let's talk a little bit about love, actually. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the, the two of you have worked on a lot of projects together um, that, that we'll discuss as we go on in our interview. Uh, but I'd like to know uh, how the two of you met each other and has your relationship always had an element of artistic collaboration? Well, I'll answer that. Uh, Chuck um, and I were working at the same uh, in the same office building, not at the same company. It was at uh, 5757 Wilshire, which is the SAG building. I was working at Lambda Medical Group, and he was working at Spelling Entertainment. And one day I was leaving the office, and he was coming in, and he held the door for me, and it was like love at first sight. Our first conversation was I asked him, I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a singer-songwriter, and I made him sing for me. So it was sort of like an audition. Um, and, you know, <laughs> he got cast right there. And he asked me what I did. And mm -hmm. I, what I was doing at the time was I was starting a theater company with two of my friends. So, and I think that sort of, he was like, what? You're only like 20 28 years old what are you doing starting a theater company mm -hmm. and i think that our whole our relationship is sort of built on this like creative um uh, creative energy or synergy because we've always sort of have thrived on each other's creative energy and that's you know a lot of the love that we have is is the creative process mm-hmm yeah, I and in terms of the second half of that question, uh, did we start creating together right away? We really did. Um, the, that theater company allowed us a lot of uh, uh, creative energy. I started working on a play by myself, but Stephen was the artistic director of that theater company. Uh, that was a musical, actually, and that uh, that Stephen was eventually involved in. And that was the green room. Uh huh. Uh, Stephen okay. was. Stephen was uh, writing in the midst of writing Legends and Bridge. It was really an exciting time. Now that I think about it, because <laughs> both of those, both of those were like skeletal one-act productions of mm -hmm. pieces that both became full-fledged pieces that are both, you know, that have both been done all over the world, really. Yeah. Uh, so it was an exciting time. There, there, we, there. He was two scenes into his play, 
here I was a few songs into this, uh, you know, second musical that I was writing, and uh, and we just kind of fed each other. And then it was later that we sat down and wrote our first screenplay together, and we've written several of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it was it was all very natural. It was like, okay, you set it that end of the couch, and I'll set it this end of the couch, and let's write a screenplay. Right. It, 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 there was no, oh, let's meet three o'clock for coffee. No, it was just, it was just you leave the TV off and let's write instead of watch. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Do you think it's important uh, for artists to have, and maybe not just a romantic partner, but to have someone in their life that they can connect to in that artistic way, whether it be a best friend or a loved one, uh, to to help them in in the artistic process. Do you do you find that pairs tend to be successful, or um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that for comedy, that is essential. Um, mm. I know that there are exceptions to the rules. Oscar Wilde wrote the funniest play um, that has ever been written by himself, The Importance mm-hmm. of Being Earnest, in, in my opinion, the funniest play I've ever read. Uh, the, uh, Neil Simon writes by himself. But uh, but uh, most of the people that I know that write comedy do it in at least groups of two. Uh, and and even the, the, you know, the Woody Allen and the the, the 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 Woody Allens, the, the Neil Simons, Mel Brooks, all Neil Simon, Mel Brooks, all those people started out writing for the show of shows for Sid Caesar. Uh, so they started their comedy writing as collaborative. Um, I feel like it's very hard to write comedy in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. that's my feeling on that. However, I will say that uh, I think you can write other genres more easily by yourself. Um, but I don't really write those genres. Stephen has a little mm-hmm. bit, but I, I don't write anything but comedy. So I, I don't have a, a lot of desire to write by myself. I like having somebody else to bounce ideas off of because it's hard to know in a vacuum what's funny. Now, Chuck, you've studied, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from my knowledge, you've studied English and music, um, including at Oxford. Um, was it always... Was it always your goal to write music? Because um, you you also write screenplays, or was it or was it both? It was always both. Uh, in fact, I wanted to have a double major in music and English. That mm-hmm. was uh, my original intention in college. Uh, but I got into music education because uh, uh, I really wanted to to uh, teach. That was one of the things I've always wanted to do, and I, I still do. I, it's what I essentially do for a living now. For the cruise lines, I worked for Princess Cruises as um, the vocal instructor for uh, the entire fleet of singers. So uh, I, I've always had a heart for teaching. I love teaching. Um, I ended up in music education, and that's uh, a very heavy load to get through in four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I ended up with just an English minor. But I've always loved literature just as much, and writing, creative writing, just as much as music. And I ended up taking a lot of of English courses and in fact when I went to Oxford there was more uh it was it was a um a certificate certificate program uh not a master's program it was a certificate program that was uh in the arts so it mm-hmm. was both 
British literature and and music. Uh, and my uh, so so I, I guess I've always written written screenplays, uh, even from you know the college years, but right. because because uh, I don't know why you get gravitated toward one thing or another, but uh, I guess uh, I was in a few uh, rock bands. Uh, I was teaching music. I always ended up uh, doing in the in the early years a lot more music, and it wasn't until um, you know it, it wasn't until until movies became something that the everyman could do, which is going back eh, kind of really fifteen ten years uh, right. that I really started writing screenplays uh, with the intention of of possibly producing them ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that w- w- when you're writing a song, you can record it yourself. You can put it online. Uh, but uh, 20 years ago, you couldn't make your own movie. Well, now right. you can. So that's one of the one of the things that uh, made me gravitate towards screenplays more recently in the last 10, 15 years. Let's um, let's rewind back to when you met. You uh, you both discussed uh, Legends and Bridge and the Green Room. Uh, were two projects that you were sort of working on simultaneously were in their beginning stages. Um, Stephen, um, I know Legends and Bridge very well. Um, I had the opportunity <laughs> I'm sure you to, do. <laughs> to play a role in uh, production of Legends and Bridge. Um, now, you previously, you uh, performed in drag. Is that correct? I did. I um I actually wrote Legends and Bridge because I'd written a play called Diva Analysis with my friend Scott Wilkerson where I played Judy Garland and Bette Midler and Liza Minnelli and Karen Carpenter. And I originally wrote Legends and Bridge because I wanted to play Judy Garland. I wanted to write another vehicle for me to be Judy Garland. Right. Now, Michael, I'm only five feet tall, so Judy Garland was only 4'11". So, you know, it, it always felt right for me to play her. And... Um, when I was writing Legends and Bridge, I was writing it with me playing Judy in mind. And then I was, happened to be cast in a play where I was playing a different character, and all the reviews compared me to Betty Davis. And so mm-hmm. so when it came time to actually do the small production of Legends and Bridge at our theater company, um, the first two scenes, I played Betty Davis. I got someone else to play Judy and someone else to play Joan Crawford. So, and then I became really well known, not as a drag artist, but mm-hmm. I became known as being Betty Davis. And um, that was very exciting. But at the same time, I wanted people to know that I was funny as a guy. Right. And And that I was just putting on a costume, that I wasn't just a... Charles Pierce. I wasn't um, Jim Bailey. That impersonation was not my end-all, be-all, and that I was actually sort of a Carol Burnett kind of guy character that I could put on characters. So drag was just, it was sort of like, you know, know, sometimes something is your entryway, and that was sort of my entryway into being able to find a niche of work that I could write and produce that was mine, you know, where mm-hmm. I didn't have to depend on just going to to auditions where, you know, 
I'm like a fish out of water because I walk in the room and they're like, what is that, you know? <laughs> you know? So that I did do drag, and that was sort of – and I actually had to stop being Betty Davis because no one would actually take me serious as an actor, a, right. a comedic actor. Um, and luckily now with that opportunity knocking and the movie Off Hollywood, the other one that I'm in, and the other projects I've done as a guy primarily on film – People right. are actually seeing that I'm funny without being Betty Davis or Judy Garland or what have you. So it's it was a very good good thing, and I do it quite well. <laughs> <laughs> Is, do you find that happens a lot to um, to actors that they'll get you know almost just sort of typecast? They start out as as one thing because it's just maybe where their interests were at the time, and then they that's that's all they can find for themselves. Do you, do you find that to be true? Well, look look at the look at the the reboot of uh, Will and Grace. Mhm. Right. I mean, those those people are all, I think, very very talented, but they haven't been able to really bust out of those characters mm-hmm. because that's all people know of them, and that's all they want. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, give me another, give me another, give me another one of those, but only different. You know. Right. So, I think it can be very, very challenging, and I found it challenging, too. You know, cause mm-hmm. people primarily see me as as a funny guy, which I am, and I'm proud of that. But I'm also very I can do dra- drama too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but luckily I, I have a pen and paper, and I'm able to write my own projects, which I always encourage actors to do. I say if you start to feel pigeonholed or like you can't mm-hmm. do something, by all means. Have someone or write your own write your own character. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say too. You know, you're you're also a talented writer. You know, so so beyond being judged for, you know, for something, you know, dressing up as a particular character. You know, um, did you find that people overlooked your your writing ability, or or does not does that not get taken into consideration in in your business? Well, I I once got a review um, of Legends and Bridge, actually, which um, said, obviously, Mr. Foster wrote this as a vehicle for himself, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, yeah, (laughs) so does Woody Allen, so does, you know, so does so many people. But, you know, at the time, I thought I was going to (laughs) die. So at the same time you were doing that, or around the same time, Chuck, you were, you were beginning work on uh, the Green Room, which is a musical, um, which I have to uh, mention that won a Songwriters Guild of America award. Is that correct? It did. Yeah, the uh, uh, Songwriters Guild of America has a uh, yearly award, uh, and we submitted it um, right back when we. Uh, uh, we're putting the the play up. I guess it was 2007 or something. Uh, and uh, so I submitted the song "It's All About Me," yeah. and which it, is a it won. wonderful song. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's uh, we've been really lucky with 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 that song. We've been lucky with the musical too. But that song has mm-hmm. been done in so many New York and London cabarets, uh, and uh, we have so many stories of people coming up and going, "What is that from?" That's so fun. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it won the. Um, uh, Songwriters Guild of America Award in uh, uh, 2007, I think it was, for um, Best Musical Song, yeah. And 
And the and the musical itself has has garnered a, a bunch of awards. And and um, when, what we're most proud of is that uh, it just keeps finding homes. The the musical's mm-hmm. been done all over the world, and uh, people will just pop up out of Ireland or. Texas right. or Canada, and they'll just say, "We've been watching this musical. We want to put this musical on." Right. Well, I, you know, I listened to, you know, from beginning to end um, through uh, iTunes, and it's it's very relatable. And then also, I notice, you know, it's really billed as, and I, I think it's it's true. Um, it can be created on a stage, you know, with all sorts of different kinds of budget constraints, which I think makes it um, really appealing to um, different kinds of production companies. Do do you find that to be true? I find that to be true because um, I'm the one who's been out there um, shopping it around. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as Chuck said, people will um, email us and say, oh, my God, this musical looks perfect for me. And we have a, we find that our niche are people who are young and eager and want to actually start something new, start a new theater company, have four friends. Um, that's how we got our Canada production. They were just out of college, and they didn't know what they were going to do, so right. they put up the green room. So it, it's sort of a, a springboard for people to um, – to live out their dreams, and that is sort of the theme and the message of of the green room. The two main songs, "In the End" and "Waiting in the Wings," are songs that are all about the creative choices that you have to make and being willing to um, wait in the wings or be willing to give your life or your your whole life to. Um, your career, and you know these people are just getting uh, getting done with college by the end of the musical, and they're eager and they're hungry, and I find that that's the market for our musical, or people who want to take on the world. And there's a lot of beautiful energy, I think, in that type of creative hunger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the um, the other book writer on it, Steve is, Stephen is one of the book writers, and the other book writer, uh, Rod Damer, a friend of mine from high school. Um, wrote uh, a, uh, a sketch of a one-act play uh, about the green room and, and gave it to me. And uh, I said, ooh, this would make a great musical. But I remember him saying at that point, yeah, I just want to write something that uh, a college could turn on the lights and drag some stuff from mm-hmm. backstage right. and and put on the show. Like there's there's no college and the, there's no theater in the world that can't do the green room because – it's a one-set musical, and mm-hmm. the set is the green room. And every green room in 99-seat uh, or colleges, they're just whatever furniture is out in the hallway. That's right. what the green room is. So you, you, there's, no, there's no theater or college in the world that can't do that, that play and make it look authentic. That concludes part one of my interview with Stephen Foster and Chuck Pelletier. Up next, I'll be discussing the changing landscape of cinema with film journalist John Lynn. But first, you might have heard us talking about it in part one of the interview. Have a listen to a wonderful song from the musical The Green Room. This is It Comes Easy. Love turns red 
Well, I hear that the French don't often pronounce S's. They don't really use that at the end of their words. So it should remain silent. That's what I've heard, but I don't know either. Oh, well, maybe we'll never know. Okay. So I'm asking because um, there was a, uh, a little tiff, we'll say, um, at, uh, at Cannes um, regarding streaming um, and cinema and film. And would you like to give our listeners just a little bit of a background about this debate that's occurring now? So, in, you know, in the, late in the late 2000s, Netflix became much more popular. And at first it was really just a website where you could sign up and get DVDs shipped to your house, kind of right. like an online blockbuster. And then over the years it's changed and evolved where they now make their own TV shows and they acquire the rights to distribute and sometimes produce movies. So in the last few years, they've started picking up movies and producing movies by major directors. But Netflix doesn't really give these movies proper theatrical releases in the United States or other countries across the globe. Okay. And a few years ago, their first big theatrical release was a movie called Beasts of No Nation. Mm -hmm. And it was widely touted as like a end of the year awards contender for the Oscars, the Golden Globes and whatnot. And at the end of the day, it really didn't get anything. And most people speculated was um, because it was a Netflix release and people weren't watching the theaters. They were considering it like a TV movie because Netflix had been seen as a TV outlet up to the time because they had made TV shows such as Arrested Development, um, maybe Stranger Things, which hadn't been out at the time, but those are the type of things they've been making. Right. But since Beasts of No Nation, they've acquired movies that were already produced or already produced by other companies. Um, this year, for example, they acquired the winner of the um, Sundance Film Festival, and they acquired the winner of the Goya Film Awards in Spain last year. So some pretty high notable independent and foreign films they've been acquiring. Mm-hmm. So this year at Cannes, um, they had two titles which were in the competition, the main competition, which is about 20 films from really highly respected filmmakers across the globe. And these two movies were Okja, the newest movie by Bong Joon-ho, he's a South Korean director, and The Meyerowitz Stories by Noah Baumbach, American director. Okay. People would see that on their Netflix now. I know I, I've seen the first uh, film that you've, that you've mentioned uh, on my, my Netflix uh, list, actually. Yeah, so Oakjaw has been released, but the Meyerwood story, I believe, will probably be released later this year or even possibly early next year. I'm not sure of the actual Netflix release date, but they both premiered at Cannes this year in, uh, in late May. Okay. So the controversy, what happened was originally the Cannes Film Festival, led by Thierry Fermont, who selects the films in competition, put those two movies in the main competition. And a lot of the French press got really rattled and were unhappy about the selection because these movies would never get a theatrical release in France. Right. So to them... I I read in an article that people were even booing when they saw Netflix come up on the screen um, before the film started. So why, why is it that booing, in, go ahead. They were booing actually Netflix and Amazon, which is interesting because Amazon has a completely different release model than Netflix, which is very important. Right. Know. Yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about. So what, 
what do the French specifically believe uh, a model of releasing a film should be as compared to Netflix and Amazon, which is different? So in France, there is a, a, a law that says all movies must be released in theaters. All movies released in theaters must wait three years before they're released in a rental format, so either online, wow. digital, or streaming, which is an extremely long time. That is a very long this time. Compar- compared to the United States, most distributors these days release movies within three to six months. Yes. Um, Amazon has usually a 90-day period for the movies they've been releasing and distributing. Mm-hmm. And Netflix is usually day, same day or maybe two or three days later. Okay. So, so why why does France have this and and you it, it's a law um and why does it exist because it seems a a bit overkill in 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 my mind although you know I'm speaking from a very naive position but that seems like a bit much it is extremely long time period no one wants to wait three years after the movie's released to go see it they will have lost interest in the movie right or moved on to really being interested. Like they won't want to see it anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's probably a law protecting the theaters in France from... Right. Uh, France is probably one of the strongest countries in the world with uh, film attendees who know the most about their movies compared to right. the United States, Americans. And then you have other countries with China, like the Chinese, who really don't pay much attention to the mm-hmm. movies they're going to see, are very unknowledgeable with film. Right. So it's probably something to protect the theaters in France. Okay. So they seem to have, you know, I I mean, I guess that is reasonable, Um, you know, but that's one extreme. So is Netflix the other extreme? And is there, is there a middle ground anywhere? How does, and does Amazon play into that? You mentioned that they have um, like a shorter waiting period. Definitely. Um, but is there like more of a middle ground? Is there some kind of compromise that could be made? Well, I think there should be a compromise. Um, so Netflix, for example, with Okja, one of their two movies, they released mm-hmm. it in theaters in New York on Friday. I think the next Tuesday it re- was released streaming on their website for everyone. Okay. Uh, so the argument is that it's not able for people to see in theaters who want to see it in theaters. And truthfully, mm-hmm. it is a movie that should be seen on a big screen. It has a lot of special effects. Um, and when you see a movie in theater, you concentrate better. It's more participatory uh, right. experience when you go to a movie theater. You see with other people, your mind is going. When you're watching at home on a laptop or on a TV, your mind will wander. You go do other things and come back. To you the can movie pause it, later. yeah. Yeah, you can pause it. You can come back three days later and try to remember where you're at. So the argument is to see the movie in theaters, and I'm a firm believer that the theatrical experience for nearly every movie is the way a movie should be seen, if possible. Right. However, those who defend Netflix say, I don't live in a town where I get these movies. I would never get Okja in my city or in my town right. or wherever they are in the United States. And that is the case for most places. Mm-hmm. Most movies are only released in the top 60, 70 markets across the country. And you're not going to see it if you live in let's say, let's say like North Dakota, probably not going to right. have an independent movie theater at all in that state. So their argument is that it's great for them because they can watch it right when everyone else is. Right. So it and becomes more accessible to, to more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely okay. does. 
So, but hmm. there should be an easy medium spot like Amazon. They release their movies theatrically and sometimes in top markets. And if they perform well enough, they will release it nationwide. So this gives the movie a chance to do well. And at the very least, it gets to be released in theaters for people in New York, L.A., sometimes Boston, Miami, etc. Mm-hmm. And then they only have a 90-day wait. So you just have to wait three months to watch the movie. And truthfully, a lot of these movies are independent foreign films, which the general populace is not waiting for anyways. Right. So a 90-day period is not going to really change the end result. That's a good so point. So generally, mm-hmm. I'm not on Netflix side. We, they treat themselves like the underdog in this fight, but they're really not. They're a multi-million dollar company now. They can really release their movies in theaters. There's no reason that they didn't mm-hmm. release the Sundance winner in at least New York theaters for a week. Right. This is a pretty high-profile title, and they just passed right over it. Yeah, I was and reading even, that yeah. um, their uh, their budgets, you know, lately, the, the amount of money that Netflix has been pumping into creating their own works or purchasing um, has been astronomical. So I think that's a really great point that you make that, you know, um, you know, they, they build themselves as an underdog, but they're, they're really um, a, a, a powerful business. Extremely um, powerful. So uh, one uh, director um, that I read about Christopher Nolan uh did mention a similar point that you made that uh, streaming can help um, films reach uh, more, more people, especially in rural areas. Um, Do you think that he or other directors are going to have an influence over this changing landscape? Um, Do you think they should? Well, Christopher Nolan is, an easy example of a filmmaker whose movies always play nationwide. His right. movies generally will always get a wide release. So mm-hmm. he's not one of these directors who's only going to see movies released in New York City. Right. So he's generally skeptical of, of Netflix because his movies are usually huge budgets. You have to see them in a theater. Like his new movie, Dunkirk, which came out. So this is why he was talking about Netflix because he, right. he doesn't want that released on um, Netflix at first oh, because it's a movie you must see in theaters. Right. Verse, but then there's another director, Ava DuVernay, who said, yeah, you need to release these movies in streaming because most people don't have the accessibility to them. Right. Yeah. Would we notice but, a different yeah. point of view, like from someone who is a very successful director, like Christopher Nolan, or, you know, um, you know, or someone who makes, and, well, I guess a lot of his films do end up being blockbusters depending on i guess the genre but you know or a director that's you know very well known for making big budget blockbuster type films would they have a different opinion as compared to an independent filmmaker who you know um doesn't make much money off of of films and is really focused on the on the art Uh, i guess in other words what i'm asking you is does the independent filmmaker have they had a voice in this and and what are they saying about, about streaming? Well, it's, it's really interesting because a lot of these movies, it depends if it's being produced by Netflix or if it's just being distributed. Mm-hmm. If Netflix is putting money behind the movie, let's say the new Martin Scorsese movie, it has a lot of production money coming from Netflix. So to him, they're financing the movie. So right. he may 
be more supportive of Netflix streaming only because they are paying for it. But most of these other movies they've been distributing, such as uh, the new film by Javier Dolan, a very now famous French-Canadian director, was released by Netflix in the United States. Um, he probably is more supportive of the fact that he's getting a theatrical release. They may pick the movie up to distribute it, but these mm-hmm. foreign directors would probably prefer still to have some type of theatrical release first. Now, when right. it comes to really independent and new filmmakers, they might be wanting Netflix to grab the movie and release it because they don't have any other outlet for it to come out. But any movies of really any note on the festival circuit or with a notable director, those directors would probably prefer them to have a theatrical release. Right. So I'm going to give you the final word on this. Where do you think this is all heading and what, what's the landscape going to look like in the next two or three years? Well, most film releases are becoming a thing where there's tentpole films coming out. Mm-hmm. The mid-budget movie doesn't exist. So multi-million dollar movies, such as, let's say, Wonder Woman or Dunkirk, which just came out, are going to be the big releases in theaters. And the smaller movies, unfortunately, are the ones falling by the wayside, which mm-hmm. I think ultimately are going to become streaming releases. Might get a release in New York City, and that's it. Maybe L.A., and then release in, in uh, online. I would personally prefer something like Amazon Strategy, release mm-hmm. the movie in a 90-day period. Let people who have an opportunity to see it, go see it, and then release it for everyone. But I definitely think the Netflix strategy is working now. Interesting. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait and see what happens. We're never really going to know for sure. Um, But this has been great and very informative. So thank you so much for joining us. And I hope to have you back very soon. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Thanks again to John Lynn. Up next is Pop Culture Chat, followed by part two of my interview with Stephen Foster and Chuck Pelletier. But first, have a listen to a song from Chuck Pelletier's album, Flight Times. We will discuss the inspiration and creation of this album in part two of our interview. This is How to Play Guitar and Be Cool.
Looking at my notes here, and my notes are just uh, really insensitive right now. Um, yeah. I'll <laughs> I'll tell you when I get to it. Um, let's let's start with with Madonna. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how um, this letter was revealed where she um, spoke poorly of uh, Whitney Houston, right, and Sharon mm-hmm. Stone. Um, yeah. <laughs> as I as I later found out, I don't think I'm not sure we talked about Sharon Stone. I might. Time. I think I mentioned her a little bit because I'm very thorough and good at this. But it's yeah. okay if you missed it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she did talk about both of them. How she was upset that, that she didn't have their kind of career at the moment. Right. Which um, then you know Sharon Stone had like a super classy response to. Oh, did she? I missed that. To her. Oh yes, she. Um, she basically said, "I'm totally paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of my face. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I wish I did. I'm an, I'm an ass." Um, but she basically, um, she tweeted out to Madonna and she put a picture of her and Madonna together. And she said, um, uh, I have felt at times to be the, uh, like the mediocre actress that you describe. And there have been times where I like, you know, wish more than anything to be a rock star. And we all have these highs and we all have these lows and I'm not going to be pitted against you. And, uh, I wish you well. And like, we're friends. And I thought that, that was really classy. cool. Yeah, especially, nice. especially. What are you gonna say? Yeah, no, you say. Especially because what? Because it was written like 20 years ago. Exactly, and stolen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it was stolen. It was a million years old. Yeah. Right. Uh, but recently, she got that was on on sale from like an auction place, and a couple of other things that someone said that Madonna gave her, and Madonna is saying are stolen. And she was able to block the sale for now. She filed an emergency court order. Um, she says that they were taken from her private residence, and it was the letter from Tupac. And there's also a pair of dirty underwear and a hairbrush with her <laughs> hair still on it. <laughs> so 
So she was able to block it by being like, my DNA could be extracted from a piece of my hair and like, you shouldn't be able to sell my DNA or something. I don't know. It's just really gross. So like on one hand, I could understand Madonna being like, okay, you can have some of my things, but who would give someone dirty underwear ever? Other right. than like in a weird sex way. Right. Yeah. Well, can you even imagine a life where where people are so obsessed with you, they're like just zeroing in on your underwear. They want your underwear yeah. and your hairbrushes. Like, yeah, that's weird. I leave my underwear all over the place, like on my floor, not everywhere, like on my bedroom floor. Yeah, like, no I just one ever pays it. me for it. Yeah, I'm not worried someone's going to take it from me. No. Maybe <laughs> if I lived in Japan, not to be like terrible, but they have like those vending machines in certain places that have like used underwear. <laughs> I've read about it. I haven't been there, and I haven't sold any underwear, to my knowledge. Look, I've, I've, <laughs> I've read the same thing, so yeah. there might be some truth to this. There we um, go. So also, um, which I thought was interesting, uh, Madonna also um, won some money in court um, from a, a news source that printed the the names and ages and basically I- identity information about two children that she was adopting. Um, yeah, she's adopting twins, I think, from Malawi. Yeah, yeah. and the uh, the argument is basically, especially in a country such as that where they're coming from, that um to basically announce like who these children are, their names and everything about them, mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, by the way, Madonna's adopting them could actually endanger them. Um, oh, definitely. And uh, so she received money and they had to pay for her court fees. But what I thought was really great was she did not keep the money for the, the court fees or any of the other money that was awarded to her. She actually donated it to a hospital that she opened, um, which I thought was really cool of her. That is really great. Cause she, she probably has so much money now that it'd be fine if she kept it because obviously what's, the news source did was not a good idea, but right. it's it's nice to put it to somewhere where it's definitely going to be put to some sort of good use. Right. Um, let's let's move on to um, it's sort of sad news, but it's it's nice because we're going to look back at at some memories that we we may or may not have. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, oh man, I'm going to butcher the name June Foray. Uh, I want to say Foray as well. Okay, so I, I'm going to say yes. We're settling on it. Okay. Yeah. So um, she is best known for uh, voicing uh, Rocky, the, the squirrel from Rocky and Bullwinkle, um, as well as the uh, the villainess from there. Do we hear my dog? I know you heard I him earlier. I hear him. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he doesn't actually, he doesn't understand, like, that we're doing a radio show. And I tell him before, and I'm like, Jake, I'm going to be, I'm going to be on the radio. And he he's seems just, to understand in the moment. on purpose. I think he might be. I mean, yeah. frankly, I don't. I'm ready to end my relationship with him. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, what is what's the villain's name? Now I lost I lost my train Natasha of thought. Natasha and Boris were the villains. Yes. Um. So she voiced them among like tons of other characters. I mean, this woman was busy. Um. And uh, she she passed away, and she was 99 years old. She would have yeah. been 100 in September. Yeah, um, it was really close to her birthday, they said. So, like, two months yeah. away. You know, and what I thought was really interesting, I looked at all these different characters, and I thought, I, I know, like, every single one of these characters, but I would never know this person if I looked mm-hmm. them in the face. Right? Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting. Did you, um, 
did you have a particular favorite character that she did? There, there are a lot of like oldie sort of she characters. She was uh, the cat in Cinderella. She was Lucifer yeah. the cat. I saw that. So that I remember from when I was little. And she was in Space Jam, which is a very millennial kind of like nostalgia yeah. thing right now. She was Granny in Space Jam, and she was Grandmother Fa in Mulan. So those are really, really popular ones. And I read something interesting that her first job as like a voiceover artist was when she was 12 years old and she played a grandmother. And it looks like from her entire career, she just had these like old lady cartoon characters that she would play. So I guess she just always had that kind of like old nurturing kind of like granny voice. Right. Oh, how interesting. It is. It's interesting that when you're 12 years old. Right. (laughs) Oh God! Um, my favorite character of hers is a, is a weird one, uh, uh, but Witch Hazel, um, mm-hmm. because um, I just remember her being really crazy, and I remember I was watching like Looney Tunes. They would like air it in the morning before school, and I'd be eating cereal, and I remember just watching some episode with Witch Hazel and Bugs Bunny, I think, and she was just like she was extra horny in that episode <laughs> and I just thought it was the weirdest thing and I became fascinated with that character and I love whenever she moved um I don't even know what it I don't know what it was it was like it looked like little pieces of her hair would spin in the air That's I don't remember, I remember that <laughs> one thing I oh. love doing now that I'm remembering she was mm-hmm. a creepy doll in an episode of uh the twilight zone like the original twilight zone yes Yes, she was. She was. Like, in Living Doll, I think it was called, and she was like, she was creepy as hell. <laughs> like, she was like some creepy itself. little girl doll, right? Yes, and it looks kind of like the little girl, and she's like, we're gonna blah, 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 blah. I don't remember how it goes, so I can't really say anything. <laughs> but, yeah, that's exactly what it was. She said that. Oh, well, okay. So that was nice, and we remembered her, and um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I'm going to look back. I think I'm going to watch some, some Witch Hazel videos. Yeah. See what's going on. See if my my memory is uh, true or false here. Um, so let's talk about Justin Bieber. He hit a guy with a car. He did. He did that. Yeah. Uh, he was going very slowly, and he got out, and he like stayed with the photographer. It was um a paparazzi person from maybe right. TMZ. I'm not sure, but he stayed mm-hmm. with them the whole time until the ambulance came, and he was very cooperative with the police and everything. So it sounds like he's kind of growing up from where he used to be. I'm sure I am very surprised that the paparazzi don't get hit more often because they do kind of just sort of like camp out right in your area and I was gonna say it's so easy to to hit a person, you know, a Mm -hmm. a paparazzi, paparazzo. Um, I I agree with you. Like I don't know why they're not not hit more by accident or on purpose. Yeah. Um, but that's really good that he stayed with him. Um, is, yeah. Do you think it has anything to do with um, these rumors that he's found religion? Um, I think so, because when he hit him, he was coming from a church service. Uh, really? I, yeah, he, I, I have to find the name of it. I'm not sure. But he has canceled all of his tour dates. Uh, he's been working very, very hard. And like he's yeah. been on tour for maybe 18 months or something. And he just canceled the rest of them. And he's apparently really into this church right now. And I think really? um, his ex, Selena Gomez, used to be in it. 
from what I've read, it says that like he likes it because he can be kind of himself and he doesn't have to be like people aren't like constantly hounding him in there. He can just relax and yeah. pray and stuff like that, which it makes sense. Sure. I mean, I, you know, again, and this goes well, rewinding sort of back to like Madonna, but when you become famous like that, you know, I guess we don't even consider like if, you know, you want to be a religious or spiritual person, you probably are not even able to go to a house of worship and, you know, do your thing for your uh-huh. religion. Um, you know, that's something probably a lot of people take for granted. Um, I didn't, I didn't know nor think he was ever a religious type. I wonder if this is something it's always sort of yeah, been, he or just, he might just be getting more yeah. into it now. It's Hillsong Church. That's what it says. Um, I don't know if that's the name of the church or if it's a denomination or if it's whatever yeah. it is. Uh, but he seems to be more focusing on his spirituality now than he was more so in the past, yeah. which makes sense. His dad seems kind of like a crazy stage dad, not the best mm-hmm. role model for someone. And he's like, he's still very young comparatively, right. especially since he became famous at such a young age. And like, he did do some shitty things, but you know, if you're like, however old he was, you're like a young teenager and someone's like, here's all the fame in the world and all the money in the world. You're probably going to become a dick for a while. Like, yeah. that's how it's going to be. Um, you know, and I guess that's, you know, after you're working for that and you're, you're right. What I've read also is that, you know, he's been on tour for 18 months. That is grueling yeah. physically, mentally. Um, you know, maybe it's something that he's turning to, to, to sort of take better care of, of himself. Um, in a way that he, you know, sees fit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I I hope it works out for him. And uh, was the guy yeah. badly? The guy wasn't badly injured that he, that I he hit, right? I don't think so. He's he sent some. I saw. I don't have the page up right now, but he sent out like a tweet or something. Was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a good birthday or something. Like, did you get hit <laughs> by Justin Bieber's car on your birthday? What's happening? <laughs> but he seemed like he was okay. Maybe he has like some scratches or a bruise or maybe a broken something, but he doesn't, right. he's not like terribly, terribly damaged. Oh, well, okay. I guess that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now I didn't read up much about this, so maybe we'll talk about it briefly and then maybe we can come back to it next time. If, if yeah. this, this might be developing, this might be developing everyone. Um, <laughs> everything's allegedly um, but you brought up something about um, Usher and yeah. some, like, disease. And... Apparently, he is uh, infecting people with herpes. I think it's, like, he's got some lawsuits against him right now alleging that he infected women with herpes, that he knowingly had sex with them without protection but did not... Um, tell them he was positive for this disease. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it's true. He seems I, so there nice. Seems to be, <laughs> <laughs> he does seem very nice. Um, there seems to be like, there's legal documents that where Usher allegedly told the woman that he tested negative for the virus despite a greenish discharge coming from his penis. 
and the woman that was suing him walked away with a million dollars. But there's new lawsuits now. I don't know if it's from the same person or from a different person. But I just think uh, if you've got anything green in your, like, genital area and it's not St. Yeah. Patrick's Day, there's probably no. a problem. Yeah. Wow. She not only walked away with a million dollars, but also a green discharge from her yeah, vagina. Yeah, and a million dollars in herpes. So, right. Well, I mean, it's, it's not deadly, but you do what you gotta do. You know what? I'd maybe, I'd maybe get herpes if I could get a million dollars. Yeah, I, I have I'd to want think it to be a guarantee. How, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd have to think about how much get after I have to pay off everything I owe to, right. like, the rest of the world. Right, right, right. So there's like, also there's okay. different types of herpes too. There like, is, there is. That could be more aggressive and nasty. So I wonder yeah. what it really is that he's allegedly giving to people. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, yes. We're gonna um, we're gonna talk about one one more thing, and then actually my my last thing uh, was just a, a silly little thing we'll bring up another day. So it's not a big deal, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to, I want to talk about R. Kelly because uh. <laughs> um, he's also a gift that keeps on giving like herpes. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. Um, is there like a cult or some weird group or something? Uh, what I've read is that he has like a lot of young, not a lot or, well, I mean, I think even more than one is a lot. He's got like young women captive in a weird way, like in a mm-hmm. sex cult kind of thing where you're not allowed to go into the room without knocking. Like, there's a woman that was with him at some point that, like, told all the, like, secrets of it, but she said she didn't know that all the other women were not allowed to be sort of, like, leaving and coming as she was. Uh, But all the women are above the age of the of consent. They're, like, Mm -hmm. 18 or 19 or in their mid-20s, so technically... still very young. Yeah, but like not as young as he used to go for so technically he's right. learning a little bit uh how to not get caught pretty much uh because he used to have a lot of issues with that like the yeah. Aaliyah thing he dated and married Aaliyah while she was like 14 or 15 and then had to get it annulled and there was the whole P videotape yeah, lots uh, of PP issues. Yeah, uh, but apparently he still videotapes everything. Like he, if he has a sexual encounter with these uh, girls that he has, I guess, locked in a basement or something, or locked uh-huh. in a closet. That's how he gets things. Ah, oh, that's a better <laughs> joke. Edited, uh-huh. So I said that joke. Anyway, so <laughs> he still videotapes them, and he will show like the men around him. So that's that's nice. No matter what, he sounds he sounds great. Yeah, you know, I mean, normally, like, this sounds so weird, I would be skeptical, but I mm-hmm. I just, I hate to say that knowing everything else that we know to be true, yeah. um, this sounds unfortunately plausible. Um, well, you know what? There was a girl who came out, uh, like, the, she released a video, I think, to TMZ, mm-hmm. and did, like, an interview saying, I am not a hostage, blah, 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 and then when they asked them where are you are you in Georgia and she was like I will not speak about that and they asked okay well are do you have any roommates do you live with anyone I will not speak to that 
and you could tell like she was looking at the corner or looking at someone yeah. that was behind the camera and you could see like the shadow of someone so it was a video for someone to be like hey I'm not a hostage everything is fine but it seemed like hey I'm a hostage so this is bad right. <laughs> like it was just not a convincing video at all oh my god Ugh. all right so we're gonna we're gonna come back. Yeah, to... I could talk about this forever, friggin' R. Kelly, yeah. but we'll stop. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I wanna I wanna follow up on the Usher thing the next time that we talk yes. to because I, I think will, I feel I like that's gonna be like an both. ongoing thing for both yeah, of these. Yeah, her, like you said, herpes never never quits. No, it's Too right. legit to quit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that's all the time that we have tonight. But I'll see you again. Like, I, well, yeah. I don't see you. I'll hear you again. Yeah. I'll hear you. Um, what about the thing? Yeah, we're just go. We'll we'll do it another time. There was just a video <laughs> of uh of uh I, what's her name? Simone Biles. <laughs> yeah, love her. Um, totally just like drugged up. Um, for uh she for legitimate reasons. Uh, having her wisdom tooth removed. Um. Yeah. And she thinks she's a truck driver. It's hilarious. Go watch it. Uh, yeah, it's on. Um, it was on her Instagram, so you can. Um, I'm sure everyone follows her on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll uh they'll find it there. But it was cute, and I just wanted to. I wanted to end with a happy thing. So I yeah, I didn't want to end like, on our Kelly's sex goal. It was a, it was a <laughs> sweet thing, and she she looks so funny too. So she does. People, she's like she beeps the horn and then basically passes out. Yes, I love also that in her um like uh see now I'm talking about it anyway. I just, I really like it. <laughs> <I'm> um <sorry. laughs> like in in her scenario she's a truck driver, right? Yeah. So not only is she turning this wheel, um but she does she honks the horn. But mm. you would think in this scenario she would just motion that she's honking a horn, but she actually makes the horn noise. Um, <laughs> I love it. In her scenario and it's uh it's really fun. Yeah, and then I love how she just instantly, like, turns off, and she's, like, yeah. laying, like, completely passed out again. Oh, drugs are uh, lovely and scary. Um, <laughs> okay, so with that, um, I'll talk to you soon uh, with more yes. pop culture chat. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry for taking up all of your time with herpes. We have all the time for herpes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. Uh, and now part two of my interview with Stephen Foster and Chuck Pelletier. Have a listen as we discuss their more recent projects, including the award-winning short film, That's Opportunity Knocking. Now, you know, you're talking a lot about a, a message and how this relates to people. And when I think of the two of you and your work, i uh, and in previous talks with Stephen, I've been saying, talking a lot about the underdog, the hard worker. Uh, Stephen, you just mentioned a, a hunger uh, for something. And I find that you, you really support people who, if they're hungry, if they really want it, uh, you, you, I feel like you're there to support them. And one thing that you've done is you, you have written a book, Stephen, called Awakening the Actor Within. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I took a look at this, this book and, and read through and it's fabulous. I think it's just oh. so wonderful and supportive. Um, and r- really, people need to to go out and purchase a copy because I really think it's your um, it's it's warm, it's accessible. I love that you include uh, stories 
uh, narratives about your own life and experience. So not only does the reader really feel like they get to know you, but that then you're there to support them through this uh, this process that you put the the actor through uh, to really uh, you know awaken what's inside of them. What what led you to to create this book? Well, um, it, it it all started with my own story because um, I was a what you would call a frustrated or blocked actor. That means I started acting in college, and I couldn't get cast, and so I kind of quit. And then the the play that I was telling you about, um, Deep Analysis, that I wrote with my friend Scott, that was sort of my jump start back into acting. And the reason that play was so powerful for me was because I realized that I always had a choice in my acting career. I didn't just have to sit by and wait until I got cast. But anyway... I read this book called The Artist's Way, and The Artist's Way is all about unblocking your art, and it's by Julia Cameron, and it's a great book, and it's really good at getting you started and and unblocking and figuring out what you want to do, and I unblocked, and I became an actor, and then as I started going to auditions and going around, I realized there was a whole series of self-esteem issues that I had around acting that I needed to deal with and actual things that were in the industry that were hurdles and obstacles, and they were real. And I wanted to write a sort of a self-help kit for actors to always be able to have a roadmap to go to when they feel frustrated or overwhelmed and always be willing. And so I wrote it from from a very generous place and also from a very pained place as well because there were so many frustrations in the acting world that I feel that are never addressed in acting school or in in um, out in the world when you go to classes. It's all based on craft. How can you become a better actor? How can you get more auditions? And you know, it's all that, but it's never about the real, the real stuff an actor deals with on a day-to-day basis. Right. And that's really what I wanted my my book to focus on is an actor having self worth and self esteem and power. So that uh, was the impetus of writing Awakening the Actor Within. Well, it's wonderful. May I may I read one line from the from the book that just really stood out to me? It's uh, towards the beginning of the text. Um, you say, "I also remember as a young actor how I used to play." their game and not mine. Mm-hmm. And I I thought that was very, very powerful. Um, could you, we've touched on that quite a bit, I think already, but could you just expand upon that a little more? Well, it's, it's, you know, like for me, it was always going out for like in college. Um, one of the reasons we wrote the green room is because kids go to college and they're, they're acting in stuff that they're, they're no way going to be cast on in the real world. Right. And when I was in college, I would go out on auditions or, or at the college. That's all I knew. I didn't know there was a whole world outside of the college, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I would go to auditions for things that I would not be remotely even right for, but I'd have to do them anyway. And and as as I evolved as an actor, what happened is 
what I mean by playing their game is you just go out on audition after audition. Agents, they don't know who you are. They don't know your work. They don't take the time to look at you. Um, that's what I mean by playing their game is you don't really have a sense of who you are in the acting profession. And through the work in my book, I hope people will come to understand who they are and what value they bring to whatever genre of acting they choose to go into. So they're not, mm-hmm. you know, like I know so many girls who are, you know, in their early 20s who they just want to be Alphaba. You know, all they know is the the Alphaba right. in Wicked, that character. They just want to play her. They just want to play her. And none of them are remotely capable of playing her. And they miss the mark of what their true talent is. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. No one tells them. For, well, for, well, you know, I don't think it's wrong to, to have a big dream, but it's mm-hmm. also the ability of saying, "Wait, maybe my talent is not to play Alphaba. Maybe I should be playing a comedy in a movie." You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? But everyone's sort of grouped together. That's what I mean by playing their game. Is like you're kind of grouped together as an actor, and you're never given any sense of who or what you are. I hope right. that answers the question in a weird <laughs> way. It does. Well, right. And, and to play to your strengths too. And to, and if you don't see what something for you out there, then to, to create it as, as you, as you've mentioned, um, you know, it's really, I think about what I, what I take from it a lot is about a self empowerment and, yeah. and really trying to do things your, your way um, with, with a bit of, of, you know, being realistic at the same time about, about what you can or cannot do. Um, well, yeah, I that... used to audition for musicals, and I can't sing. You know, right. why would I even? <laughs> and my point, Michael, is why would why would I even have to endure that heart pounding, horrific experience? If someone had told me, "Don't do that. Just be funny. You're five mm-hmm. feet tall. You have a high voice. This is who you are. Focus on that. Let's find some roles that you can play, as opposed right. to." Oh well, here you know we're doing Romeo and Juliet this year, or we're doing, um, you know, Robert Bridegroom or whatever, or Little Shop of Horrors. There's no part for you, you know, so you're out of luck. Chuck, I'd yeah. like to talk a little bit about your album, uh, Flight Time, mm-hmm. um, which I have also listened to and think is just wonderful. Um, Thank you. But I also, you know, I thought it was interesting. I'd like for you to talk to me a little bit about it. Um, you know, it, just doing research about you, it seemed that you were, you know, more geared towards writing musical numbers. Um, but yet here's this really beautiful album um, with a lot of, I, I, I hear pop and rock influence and um, it's enjoyable and different. And what brought you to create something like this? Well, it's interesting. I actually started writing pop songs before I started writing musicals and people mm-hmm. often comment to me that uh, a lot of the songs from the, the Green Room or the couple other musicals I've written are sound like they're, they're rock songs but mm-hmm. um, what brought me to, to uh, compile some uh, of those songs, my favorites basically is that uh, you know as a young um, ex-music teacher hitting the streets of Los Angeles uh, mm-hmm. And writing songs, I, I really wanted a, a record contract, and right. um, the the music I was writing was 
uh, a cross between the Eagles and, well, I don't know, U2. It's sort of mm-hmm. uh, orchestr- uh, orchestrated the instrumentation. Uh, has some I've, uh, a, a lot of different strange influences, Elton John. So it really wasn't what was going on in music at the time. Uh, right. But I just wasn't one of these people that could listen to the radio and go, oh, I see. So um, J Lo is doing, uh, you know, what's what is uh, what what are the hot artists doing now? Okay, right. I'm going to emulate that. Then I'm going to write that. That's not me. Uh, mm-hmm. If I had loved what was going on in the music scene at that time, maybe I could have done that, but I, I really didn't. Uh, so I wanted to eventually um, get those songs onto an album, and I decided to, Stephen helped me, choose the songs that uh, I thought were the, the, the best songs that I'd written sort of in mm-hmm. that genre, and also a collection of songs that sort of told a story in the Mm -hmm. sense that an old album rock uh, era album would tell a story. And I'm not talking about Pink Floyd's The Wall, which actually tells a story, or -hmm. or Tommy. I'm talking more about the the albums of Elton John. Uh, The album, I don't know who knows of your viewing audience, Elton John, but the album... Goodbye, Vic Road has a theme of, of where Bernie Taupin, the lyricist, was, was trying to write a lot of songs about old movies. Uh, mm-hmm. The album Tumbleweed Connection is about the Old West. The album Don't Shoot Me, the piano player, is sort of about the gangster era. So, so every, to me, Elton John was the best album rock writer because album, it, it wasn't like telling a story from the beginning to the end, but it was putting you into a world. And I think great album rock puts you into a world, and that's what I wanted to do. But I wanted it to sort of be be my story, the story of uh, a boy that grew up in and and became an adult in uh, Midwest, um, didn't didn't know uh, his identity um, in any way, certainly sexually, uh, mm-hmm. and it was a long hard road that I had to go down to realize a lot of things about myself, which were that, number one, I had to create art, whether I made money at it or not. Number two, I was gay. Uh, I couldn't fall in love with women. I could only fall in love with men. Uh, Number three, uh, money was important to me, but I was just not willing to sacrifice my soul uh, for it. You know, a lot of those things that you learn, and so I wanted to put that all into these songs, and uh, I self-produced it um, uh, for for the same reason that we sort of have a, uh, one of the running themes we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen's book, Awaken the, in the Actor Within, uh, is is uh, about living in the um, creating sort of in this in the space between, right? So there's the famous actors, there's the Tom Hanks's of the world uh, who make. Eleven million dollar minimum on every picture, right. and up to two hundred million. Uh, and then there is the uh, there is Jack Jones, who is in several of his community theater production. I'm making up a name, but the the mm-hmm. man who or woman who is in the community theater productions in Beirut, Montana, <laughs> and really loves what they're doing, uh, and. And my um, so my 
uh, my theory is always that Jack Jones is enjoying what he's doing in Bohut, Montana, mm-hmm. just as much as Tom Hanks is. Tom Hanks right. is making $11 million, and uh, Jack Jones is buying his own wardrobe and buying his uh-huh. own makeup if he's even putting on makeup, right? So there's right. a little difference in the salary. <laughs> However, the actual mm-hmm. joy that he's getting when he goes out there uh, and, and plays Big Daddy in Cat on Hot Tin Roof, I think, is just as valid for his soul as Tom Hanks when he does Saving Private Ryan, perhaps more. Um, mm-hmm. So I think what me putting this album out and what Stephen wrote about in his book and, and everything we do is that there's this space in between where you can do what you love to do like someone in community theater does, but also continue to put it out there with the hopes and dreams of becoming the next Tom Hanks, the next Neil mm-hmm. Simon, whatever, uh, and, and living happily in that world and see yourself as a success despite the fact that you're not making $11 million per picture. Maybe you're making $11 per picture or spending right. $11. Yeah, so the, the money is just a number. It's just a number. And, and we as human beings have to create. And if someone's not willing to pay us $11 million, we still have to create. And so right. I had to make that album, and that's why I made that album. Uh, and uh, it literally needed to come out of me. And mm-hmm. everybody who has an artistic feeling that they have to write a song or be an actor or write a play or write a screenplay or make a movie should do that. And right. they shouldn't hope... Uh, or, or they shouldn't. They shouldn't expect to make a million, uh, eleven million dollars. They mm-hmm. shouldn't. They should just put it out there, and 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 hope to become a success, but feel just as fulfilled if if it's not a success. Right. You know what I mean? Because it, because if we don't, and if we teach our children not to do that, that's when we get um, the, the the crime. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we get crime because. Because people uh, have no have no art, they have no, and art connects you to your soul. And if you have no soul, then you buy a gun and you want to shoot people. I mean, right. I, I hate to say it, but it's true. Whereas, no one I know from my art department, my theater department, or my music department has bought a gun and shot anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think most people could say that same thing. So the the value of the arts is so important. And the money that you make from it is beside the point. And I made that album, because, which, which cost me more money than I have made or will ever make on that album. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the things I'm most proud of and could not have left this earth if I had not put that album out. And uh, I, I loved the process of doing it, and I'm happy when people listen to it. Well, people should listen to it. I think you know not only is it something that you need it to – to get out, but I think it's something that could really inspire people when they listen to it. Do you ever plan on, on doing another or writing more, more songs uh, to release them in, in an album form in the future? It, yeah, it's funny. I've, I, I've written, I think I made a list at one point and 
I've written somewhere between like 500 and 1,000 songs. So there's a wow. lot of songs out there. Because I actually have another, um, uh, another set of songs that has mm-hmm. been albumized. Uh, our, our mutual friend, Karen Volpe, who is actually the, the voice of Devon on uh, the original uh, Green Room CD. She um, uh, had a country band and mm-hmm. released uh, an album of... Uh, a set of country songs, all of which I had written or co-written. So that sort of already is a, a second album out there of, of my stuff, and I had a hand in in producing that as well. Um, so would I do another solo? I, I, I would. Um, I, I'm kind of uh, I've, I'm kind of chomping at the bit of making more movies now, but um, mm-hmm. but if I were to make another album, I know what it would be because the last album sort of hints of. Uh, my journey towards sexual awakening, I shouldn't say sexual, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, ge- gender, uh, um, uh, sexual preference awakening, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the next album would pick up where that left off. The next album would be about the um, odd thing that happens to a 30-year-old man when he realizes that he can only fall in love with men. Right. That's, that would definitely be the theme of my next album. Whether I'll ever get to it, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned you're chomping at the bit to do uh, to do more movies, and I'd like to talk about one in particular that the two of you are uh, heavily promoting and is making the rounds at various festivals and winning awards, and it's called That's Opportunity Knocking. Um, could you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, how you got into uh, this this work and the process and how it's been now that people are getting the chance to finally see it. Yeah. Stephen, take that one. Okay. Um, well, what happened was we were actually in a play which we were self-producing called Seven Dreams of Falling. At the Hollywood Fringe Festival. At the Hollywood Fringe Festival. and By uh, Scott Wilkerson. By Scott Wilkerson. And um, who actually wrote my first play, Diva Analysis, with me. Mm-hmm. So see, everything comes full circle. And we were doing this play, um, and after the play one night, um, one of our actors, Thomas Annawalt, told us a story. We were sitting at a bar, and he told us a story about when he was living in New York and making the rounds as an actor, he actually had his apartment robbed. And one, one night he came home with his, with, his, with his girlfriend, and they were making out, and they noticed the apartment was sort of in a state of disarray, and they thought one of the... Um, other roommates was doing some spring cleaning, so they just continued to make out and went into the bedroom. Right. The next day, they got up and the place was was robbed, completely robbed. And they they surmised that the uh, the robbers were there while they were making out. Mm-hmm. So Chuck told uh, or um, the Thomas told us this story, and Chuck immediately said that would make a great comedic screwball short film. Yeah, and he wrote it up and he gave it to this uh, uh, producer, and um, we actually shot the film, and we actually entered it into film festivals. And to our great surprise and delight, we at this talking, as we're talking right now, we have won 19 awards at film wow. festivals. And Amazing. once again, it was an indie project. We didn't have a million dollar budget. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of bring your own costumes, and you know we built a little set, and you know we filmed it. So you know there's 
that whole thing of of um, you know putting something together and it being successful, you know that that is why we we do what we do because this film has gotten us more attention than the Green Room or Legends and Bridge, and you know we're very proud of it. So that that's how that came to be. Now I haven't had the the chance to to see it. But where, will it be playing at more film festivals um, that you might be able to tell us about if you happen to know now? Um, and will it ever be available for people to actually purchase or get their hands on in some way? Chuck? It will be. Uh, we, um, uh, we have actually uh, uh, just allowed it to be out to film festivals so far. Okay. And even my sisters, my three wonderful sisters, have not gotten to see it <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because one lives in northern Michigan they're just there there are no um uh you know if there's not a film festival near someone they have not seen this film yet right. Stephen's family was uh, Stephen's entire extended family recently yeah. uh was able to to see it at the uh, Fort Worth uh film festival and uh, did I get that right yeah so the, yeah the the um the the movie uh as any movie does uh, goes through a circuit of film mm-hmm. festivals, and it's usually about a year. Uh, so we're actually in a couple of film festivals dribbling out here for the next few months. But as soon as that rounds up, uh, then we're going to uh, release it. We're talking to a couple different distributors right now, mm-hmm. but we're definitely going to uh, release it in a um, in an online platform. One of the one of the main aggregates, you know what I mean? Uh, either yeah. Amazon or, or 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 whatever, and it will actually be available not just to purchase like on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Anybody can put something, but it will, we will actually have it on Amazon Prime. You'll be able to to pull it up on your on your television uh, or whatever. So so there will be a way that anybody in the world be, will be able to watch it. And when that great day comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can check our website. Uh, that's opportunitynocking.com, uh, and that information will be up there probably sometime, certainly by the end of the year. Yeah, uh, it'll be available for anyone to watch. How exciting is that for you? Is that is this is this a big moment for you? I mean, I guess every moment is is big and makes makes you happy, makes you proud. But is this one extra special? Absolutely. Yeah. For for me, uh, not to butt in, but. Because uh, we sat in many, many theaters, Stephen and I, not mm-hmm. knowing what the audience would would react uh, to in right. terms of the lines, and everybody laughed, and everybody enjoyed themselves, and everybody told us that they dropped in in the first few frames of the film into the world, and they believed in the world, and they got done with the with the 22 minute film. And they had a story that they mm-hmm. could take with them in their little souls for the rest of their life. Uh, and that that experience made Stephen and I want to make more films. It was a great experience, and 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 richer, I think, even than uh, the various plays that we've written uh, and musicals we've written and productions of those plays and musicals that we've put up or my CD. For me, this has been the experience that I want to replicate uh, mm-hmm. and even expand on. 
uh, just want to. We've already got a lot of scripts written, and we just want to make some of them into movies and write right. more. Wow. And I want to chime in too because mm-hmm. um, it's it's not just the the validation that we've gotten from the film festivals, but it's also Chuck and as Chuck had touched lightly on, we've actually written a bunch of scripts, him and myself between us, and we've always been trying to pitch those scripts out here in Hollywood, right. and that can be very grueling and you never get anything out of it because if a script doesn't sell for some reason you don't you have a product but you don't have any, anything you can do with it and so this was the first time that we actually besides our plays that we actually had a product that is out there and 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 now people can see what I can do as a comedian and they can also see what Chuck can do as a writer and a director, and right. that is really the whole thing. Is we wanted it to be a calling card for some of the other work that we have in our canon, you know, in our catalog. Which you know, yeah. Chuck said he's written over you know 500 songs, and I we both have written about you know 20 screenplays. So you know, it's a it's a major opportunity for us to actually have a product out there. That's a movie, so it's very gratifying, Michael. Very gratifying. Well, I'm I'm so happy for for the both of you. Um, it, it's it's really wonderful to um, to to see this happening. I'm I can't wait to see it. Do you have have you played anything? Uh, has it shown up in New York City? Because that's I'm right outside of New York. Well, we it 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 has, and it's actually going to be in New York City at the Validate Yourself Film Festival, which is actually going to be, um, let's see, September 25th through the 27th. So actually, um, you're going to be. Um, I'm sorry, it's going to be September 25th through 27th, mm-hmm. um, and that's gonna that might be our very last film festival, and so it's it's going to be in New York. So you're wow. in and this is, the, this is the second the second festival in New York City that it, that it's been in. It's played a couple times in Washington, two or three times in Washington D.C. Uh, but yeah. yeah, that's that's that may be the last chance to see it on a big screen in New York City. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm going to to try to be there um, so that I can I can get a glimpse of this because it really <laughs> looks it, it looks great from what I've seen uh, online oh. thus far. So I just wanted to again thank. Uh, thank the two of you uh, for joining me today. Um, I wish you all the best, and I thank you so much for being so very generous with your time because um, you're you're two very hardworking individuals, and to take an hour out of your time to talk to me means a lot. So I really appreciate it. It's our honor to be on the show. Thank you so much for inviting us. Yeah, Michael, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for covering all of our body of work. It just it's incredible. Thank you well, so much. There's so much more to even cover, and we can't even get to it. Um, so <laughs> I did. I did my best. There's there's so much to talk about. I would love to have uh, both of you on uh, again in the future to to chat more about any new and interesting things uh, that you're doing, or even just to have have a nice chat because um, you're just you're you've both been just wonderful to talk to. Thank you so much. 
This concludes the show. Again, I want to thank the inspirational Stephen Foster and Chuck Pelletier. If you're listening to me on Blog Talk Radio, please check out the links below to visit the websites for their many projects we discussed in our interview. If you're hearing me on iTunes, remember, you're only a quick web search away from supporting these two wonderful gentlemen. As always, thank you to John Lynn and Carrie Childers for joining me live tonight. I'll be back on August 10th with Lisa Sarges to discuss her book, Diary of a Fat Girl, How I Lost 140 Pounds, Overcame Binge Eating Disorder, and Learned to Love Myself After Weight Loss Surgery. Thanks so much for listening. This is Mike Lyons. I'm not important and don't have much to say.